Hey guys, it's Jack. Time for another episode. Today we've got Ed Polachek. He is the director of Lincoln Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, we're going a little fine arts here. I'm versatile, but I'll tell you what, even if you're not into classical music, man, you are going to find this guy a incredible character. So just listen up right now. Enjoy it. Hey, if you want to give me a heads up, possible title sponsor, shoot me a message. If you want to tell me about any places you're not hearing the spot, uh, the podcast that you'd like to, Shoot me a message on that, too. Let's get to the show. Welcome again to the Jack Mitchell Podcast. So glad to have you back with us. And I want to jump right in uh, with our guest today, because if I know anything about my conversations with him, we're going to need all the time that we can get for the both of us to say a whole lot of things. Um, but, it, 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 but in terms of introduction, uh, this is uh, a man I've, I've gotten to know really well over the last my goodness 16 years we've been uh doing interviews on my show uh during the symphony orchestra season every month or so since uh probably 2006 2007 at that point and in that time gotten to know each other um kind of made maybe i don't know if it'd be an unlikely friendship but a friendship but i enjoy the heck of him i think he's one of the most interesting people i know and so i needed to get him on the podcast and we've got it he's the music director of lincoln symphony orchestra been doing that since 98 uh won the leopold stakowski stakowski conducting award in 1978 i probably said that wrong but it's a great award uh, as a result it conducted the philadelphia orchestra from 79 to 99 he was on the conducting staff of the baltimore symphony orchestra directory of the symphony chorus founder director of the baltimore symphony chorus chamber singers guest conductor there summer of 87 conductor uh in of the, the uh i'm going to say this wrong Mu- music's hasty americani summer festival in salmona italy also conducted the peabody symphony orchestra in moscow first ever american student orchestra in the soviet union got john hopkins distinguished alumnus award 2004 baldwin scholar at university of notre dame of maryland where he did lectures and all those but and that's probably not all of the resume i'm sure i left many things out but above all he has come on my radio show month after month for 15 years and we've both acted like dumbasses almost the entire time <laughs> and so welcome ladies and gentlemen my friend maestro ed Polichik. ed how's it going uh, huh well it's going well it's it's hot here in baltimore i i my my main residence is in baltimore but i consider my second home lincoln nebraska and uh, i i have you know it's like Two and a half decades now that I'm I'm music director for Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra, um, and I have forged so many incredibly beautiful relationships. And I'd have to put your, yours and mine, Jack, way up there, right on top, because um, we've gotten to know one another through talking, basically. I mean, you're you're you have one of the best talk shows around, and. I have gotten to know you, and then we even invited you for on several occasions to do narration for our family concerts, for our, our Deck the Halls pops, uh, Christmas pops, and all that. It's it's a really beautiful, beautiful relationship, and it's one that's that's been strengthened mainly through what I do and what you do. I'm uh, uh, obviously a, the the conductor, music director of Lincoln Symphony Orchestra, and it's it's primarily the promotion of the classical music fine arts, right? 
it's not that we don't do pops and do other things and, and all that, but as a cultural institution within the Lincoln community and in the state of Nebraska, it's what you would consider one of the fine symphony orchestras in the country now who are offering our community um, everything from pops to family shows through smaller groups uh, going into hospitals with our harmony and healing uh, 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 aspect of, of one of the, the kind of tangents that we do uh, to reach into the community. Our players are all, or not all, but 70 to 80 percent of our players are music teachers, whether they're at the university or at schools, high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, private teaching. It's a family of musicians who really enjoy and find a need to make a contribution to our community. And after so many years of building and, and being there and making a major commitment to the Lincoln community, I realized that it's one of the most important things in my life to be able to uh, be connected in Lincoln, Nebraska, and mainly through the music, which is, in my opinion, you know, the universal language of all of us. Um, uh, the one thing I left out after that string of things that the Lincoln Symphony does is, of course, classical music concerts. <laughs> and we're, we, we, we have, you know, uh, changed uh, direction in many ways. We had to through COVID um, when uh, uh, we were uh, allowed only to get so many musicians on stage, not a full symphony. And um, uh, as a result of that, we have made a... a We've attached, let's say, a new uh, part of our mission to who we are, and that is to also promote composers of color, of different gender. And I say that um, uh, as different gender because we have so many aspects within the gender uh, uh, categories now um, and uh, living composers across the board, in addition to um, composers who have been overlooked in the past, uh, who have maybe died in the 21st century or were very prominent in the 20th, 20th century um, uh, and maybe didn't get the the uh, recognition or, or renown that they really deserve. So it's it's a bit more work for all of us to, to figure out what is the best of those uh, offerings that we can present. But on almost every single program we do now, there's a bit of what I like to call continuing education in the arts for all of us, you know, whether you're four or 104, it doesn't matter because music connects uh, across the board. Um, it may have um, different meanings to different people. Um, uh, and, and some will say, oh, wasn't that beautiful? Others will say, oh, gosh, I found that disturbing. Or wasn't this really very sad? And others will say, oh, I found that very melancholic. Uh, uh, positive, negative uh, uh, reactions to what we do, I think, is very important. And as a result for myself, now I feel that I, uh, as the kind of major contributor to the cultural scene in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that is in a very, very important part of who I am. You know, Ed, it's interesting because we've talked over the years about kind of making the orchestra hall more accessible and, and maybe less intimidating, and, and I think you and the orchestra have done a good job of that. You, but just looking at you, you're kind of a microcosm of that concept in a lot of ways because, you know, on paper when I'm I'm young in radio and I see you and and your resume and what you do, um, coming in it 
it can be it could be intimidating. It it, it very well could be intimidating. I'm I'm picturing someone who's I'm picturing somebody who's stuffy. I'm picturing you know uh, all of these things. I don't expect somebody I'm going to go and make fart jokes with on the radio. But yet that's <laughs> but that oh, that's, I, I have a ton of those. <laughs> I bet you do. I know now. I know now. But I think that's what I mean. I think. The way you conduct yourself around people like me are people who aren't necessarily enmeshed in that community um, really goes a long way towards making everything more accessible. I, I mean, that your, your personality is just not maybe what people would expect it to be if they don't know you and they just know you on paper. Well, here, here, here's the deal, and I, I, I feel quite strongly about this, um, and I can do this by example first. Um, when I first got to Lincoln and uh, uh, things were, I realized, in a major building process, I would, add, and I still do it to this day to some extent, but not to the extent I did it 20 years ago. Um, I would, at the gas station pumping gas, in a, a supermarket, in, waiting in line or at any store, just, you know, with uh, the people that I don't even know within the Lincoln community. And I would, you know, while we're waiting there, I would say to somebody, hey, by the way, do you like classical music? And kind of nervously, they turn around and go, you know, I know they're thinking, who the heck is this guy? <laughs> right. And, I, and they nervously smile and they say, well, no, not really. And I, they, I say, you know, if they think that's the end of the conversation. But I say, well, why not? <laughs> and then nervously, they smile again and say, well, because I just don't understand it. And they think that's the end of the conversation. I said, but you know, you don't really have to understand classical music. I said, what you have to do is experience it live in the hall with the orchestra playing and feel that energy that is created between the orchestra and the listener. And I said, I'll make you a deal. Uh, if you would agree to come to our, our upcoming concert, I will comp you with any number of tickets that you would like on two conditions. One, that you use them. And two, that you come back to me afterwards. I'd like to know your reaction. Even if it were negative, I don't care. I need to know both, positive or negative. I'd say 98% of the time, people would come back either with eyes like plates or with tears streaming down their eyes. And their reaction is always the same. I had no idea that it was so exciting. You don't really have to know classical music to appreciate it. You just have to experience it. And it doesn't do any good for me to say, here, take this CD. You're going to love this piece of music. That doesn't work. But if you get them into the concert hall, you can almost always, inevitably, you can hook them into something that they weren't really aware of, uh, that they even had any kind of connection to. Interestingly enough, they 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 do have a connection through either cartoons um, or commercials, television commercials. There is more classical music being used in those. Uh, the, I think maybe it's out of laziness that they think, ah, you know, Beethoven nine. Hey, that's fun. Let's throw this on as you know the, the music for under this ad or this commercial. Um, but nonetheless, it it's there, and they're beginning to make a connection to it when they hear it live. They go, oh my gosh, I had. I had no idea it was part of something so so great and so big, you know. So we are um, we are always trying to combine the old standbys that people would be very familiar with with some new things that are 
um, promoting, as I was saying earlier, the uh, uh, music of 21st century composers, upcoming composers, composers who really deserve to be heard again. And uh, there's always been an, uh, an overlooking of female composers, of black composers or, or composers of color. And when you start to peel away the onion skins layer by layer, you find some of these incredible pieces of music. And so I think that the mix of that is really wonderful. Um, and that's why I, I feel strongly that if we in the classical music, quote unquote, realm of the fine arts, uh, don't uh, shed that old man. Man, uh, mantle of what was the kind of quote-unquote social elite of the the fine arts of classical music and really get into the lives of the everyday person uh, regardless of income regardless of race ethnicity anything um, and just let the music speak for itself then you can make a connection and I'm not alone with this I happen to have uh, one of the most magnificent executive directors in the country. I'm telling you, and you know this yourself, Jack. Know her from, well. She's yeah. going to be on my podcast a few months, so yeah. Yeah. Um, Barbara Zockley has been our uh, executive director, I think, almost as long as you and I have known each other. I think uh, so. About, about 15, 16 years, something like that. And uh, there's that aspect of it, uh, someone who on the administrative side and helping me with fundraising or we both do it together to a large extent um uh, making those connections within the community um and uh helping uh to build the board identifying the, the people in the community that are strong uh, community members uh who understand the importance of having a great symphony orchestra within the community so there's myself and Barbara, and I have to add a third person to that to this triumvirate, and that's Anton, Anton Miller, our concertmaster, because he has been with the orchestra. I've been with the orchestra. It's going to be in 2023. It's going to be my 25th anniversary. But he's been with the orchestra even 10 years before me. I think he started when he was about two or three as concertmaster. <laughs> Anton never changed. He always does the same. And God bless him. He is... He's one of the great concertmasters, believe it or not, in our country. And I know, I know this for a fact because uh, uh, Lincoln is the kind of community that would say, well, if you're, you know, if you're from Lincoln, maybe it's not so, you know, it must be better if it's from the outside. That's, that's, that's a kind of uh, a, an attitude that I've come across many times, not only in Lincoln, but here in Baltimore as well. Because we're sandwiched between New York and Boston on the north and and Philadelphia and Link and uh, uh, Washington and Richmond on the south, which are much larger communities than Baltimore. But we have that kind of inferiority complex <clears throat> as well. But it's not true. It's not the case. Anton is a, a first-class violinist. He is an incredible concertmaster, chamber music player, pedagogue, soloist. Um, and just downright nice guy, you know, mm -hmm. you put the, those together and we create a, what I consider a perfect storm. Um, in addition to that is our board um, uh, through which Barbara has built over the years. And our board president is always someone who is so incredibly 
connected. And it, our, our, our most recent board president has been Kirby Reardon. But we have, we have a, in a certain sense, a list of who's who in Lincoln who have been our board presidents. And you put all those together with the way the orchestra has been working their butts off and presenting some of the most incredible concerts in the last few years, um, even with COVID. I mean, I have been so proud of this orchestra that I basically I can never wait to get back out to Lincoln to work with these people again. It's it's a, in some ways it's like a dream come true for me. I I, I want to get the, back to that thing about Lincoln, but what you said earlier made made me think more. This, this kind of this this reputation, perhaps that I was talking about that classical music has, and and the things right. that people associate with it. How much? I mean. Was that music originally designed, was it part of the design, the thought behind it to be exclusionary, to be for the, the finer people, the finer things? And, and, and how do you kind of reconcile that if true when, when, when you, when you think about it, when you, when you perform it, those sorts of things? Well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a yes and no answer. Yes, because Musicians, uh, composers back in the 19th and the 18th and even the 17th century and before that, if you go back as far as the medieval period into the Renaissance to the uh, Baroque, classical, romantic, you know, all the way up to uh, present day, um, so up until through, I'd say, the 20th century, so many of the arts, so much of such a big part of the fine arts and classical music, of course, is part of that, was funded by the the social elite, the people who had the money. Uh, and it catered to those people. Before the 20th century, the early 20th century, and even through the 19th century, you can go back into uh, the privilege, the, the nouveau riche, um, and before that, into the bourgeois, uh, uh, to the royalty, um, and before that, into the church. That was a huge... Uh, promoter and sustainer and, uh, uh, people who had, had really commissioned so many of these composers to write. So yes, it was in a sense for the social elite. Um, but then if you go back early enough where the church was the, the sponsor of these musicians, um, that music was then being heard by the common person who did go to church and, and hear it. But beyond that, most of the composers now there's there are some exceptions like Mendelssohn who came from a very wealthy family and I can name some a few but most of them came from nothing they were really the poor folk um, take Haydn his you know his 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 uh, father was a wheelwright family couldn't even support him as a child so they had to ask if he could sing in Saint Stephen's Church and Cathedral in in Vienna just so that he could get room and board. So these people who have come from nothing and maybe made then a name for themselves um, really never left their humble beginnings in their intellect and in their, their emotional hearts. So in many ways, even though they were writing for the, the elite and the people with the money, they were actually in their hearts, I think, writing for the common man, um, the average person, even look at. Beethoven is another good example mm -hmm. of that. Comes from nothing, and he had nothing but disdain right. for, for the royalty and the wealthy. And and the more he would, you know, uh, shit on them, the more that they they would, you know, hand him money and want more commissions. He was he was amazing, you know. Uh, and and 
I think around that time is where where it began to turn from just uh, uh, the royalty and the church and all being the, the sponsors and the commissions uh, and the people who supported the fine arts into more the, the nouveau riche, the people who are making money, you know, through the 1800s. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a great series out now uh, that I, I'm, I've become hooked on called The Gilded Age. And it's about um, the late 19th century going into the early 20th century in this country. Um, the way um, the the upper class, the real wealthy people, whether they're the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, Roosevelts, Vanderbilts, et cetera, et cetera, how they lived. Um, and it's it's like a throwback into the early times of the 19th century in Europe. You know, but there was then so much wealth after the Industrial Revolution hit. America became stronger and stronger and wealthier and wealthier. Um, and so that also impacted the classical music because they were the people then that kind of were the ones who would make sure that they kept it alive because it was the quote unquote social thing to do. And if you were a musician of talent, then you were able to break into some of that um, uh, I don't know, kind of notoriety and to some extent wealth, um, uh, that, that, uh, that the upper class would actually recognize you as being one of those talents, whether it was a singer or a pianist or a violinist. And we know of these, you know, uh, uh, in the 20th century, the Yasha Heifetz, the Vladimir Horowitzes, the Enrique Caruso's that, you know, morphed into present day, uh, you know, Luciano Pavarotti's. I mean, mm-hmm. in fact, one of the, the soprano that we had closing our concert uh, this season back in beginning of May was Renee Fleming. And she is that kind of classical music superstar that is able to cross over. Mm-hmm. She did some very serious things on, on the program, the Richard Strauss four last songs. And then she ended up with uh, musicals and very famous opera arias and some really fun things that the audience just went absolutely ape over. It was it was exciting to see that. It really was. Uh, number one, I'm surprised you had time to watch any other television series than reruns of Law and Order. Number one, and I don't know reruns of Law and Order now. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't know anybody who loves that more than you. So that's number number one. Do you, I, I'm curious. You know, you and I. You come on the show and we talk about the pieces you're going to do, and we talk individually about these composers and the time period and the country right. and the things that were going personally in the heart it's so hard for me to even imagine in in those time periods in the things that were going on doing the technical work of writing these pieces at that time even without the technology in some case without a whole lot of other things in the case of beethoven or or others right. do you ever kind of put yourself try and put yourself in into their shoes as you're as you're thinking about their music as you're directing their music and how possible is that just given what a different era that was and and everything that was going on and, and they're all different individual stories but i'm curious how you do that because it it seems almost unreachable to me mentally well you know i can give you two examples of that one my father um who was born in 1911 uh, died in 70, 77, but, um, he would, and, and he was, he and my mother both were products of the Great Depression. 
Um, and they came from nothing, literally from nothing. They, they were uh, immigrants to this country from Slovakia. And um, he, um, he, had, he would often say, you know, Edward, born in any other time period, because I have seen in my lifetime, now this is quoting my father, I have seen in my lifetime perhaps the greatest of advances scientifically, technologically, than, than in any other period in history. I come from a time when there were horse and buggies and the kerosene lamp and outhouses to a time when we we're watching a man walk on the moon. And I think being raised in a small town outside of Scranton, PA, um, and having coming from humble beginnings, it's a little bit easier for me to connect into where where these composers were coming from um, than somebody who might have been raised in a, you know in maybe in a greater affluence than I than I was. That's one thing. I also studied with a teacher, Leon Fleischer, uh, at the Peabody Conservatory, um, who. Uh, we all, those of his students, um, we would always kind of jokingly, but it was somewhat serious, say that we had a direct connection to Beethoven because Leon Fleischer studied with Arthur Schnabel, who studied with the great Lechitsky, got to be careful how you say that name, <laughs> who studied with Liszt, who wow. studied yeah, who studied with Czerny, who studied with Beethoven. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that's only a, 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 a matter of about 200 and some years that go by for all of those generations to come to me. And I always thought, my God, I was have been incredibly blessed to have been able to find a teacher in Scranton, PA, who was able to take a young child at four years old who, you know, couldn't read or write yet and um, under her wing and instill in me the thing that I was from as long as I can remember, two years or slightly younger than two years old, who instilled in me the passion of music. And I've always said that I'm one of the luckiest people I know because I get to do in life what I love to do most what i'm most passionate about and i make a living at it so in a certain sense i never work, work a day in my life you know not that there's not a lot of work that's involved to do what i do um but it, i get such joy out of the results of it and i must say that it was not easy um starting 24 years ago with lincoln symphony uh coming up to the point where we are at now in in 2022 um, I could not be more thrilled with the way our, our orchestra has developed, with the way our community has taken ownership in, in our orchestra, with the way our orchestra's personal or ent their entity is becoming their own uh, 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 ID, uh, their own entity within them as a group, even though we're very desperate, uh, disparate, not desperate, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, desperate, but uh, disparate in, in our, <clears throat> where we come from, our backgrounds, but we're all willing to work as a unit. And I, I'm beginning to notice now more than ever that our orchestra, uh, Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra, has taken on its own identity. And for me, that is probably the greatest gift that I could have 
help them get to that point is, 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 is one of the greatest gifts that I could have helped them get to that, that point. And you'll notice now that whether uh, even the lead center um, has taken, uh, sat up and taken notice that, gosh, we have a really great orchestra here. Last fall is a great example where Bill Stefan got a call from Boston, Boston Pops, and said, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to cancel um, uh, because of where COVID is at at the moment. We can't travel. And Bill Stefan, uh, God bless him, said, didn't take no for an answer. And he said, uh, I'm going to give Keith Heckman a call. And he did. And he said, uh, Keith, we have in Lincoln a really fine symphony orchestra. If you'd be willing to bring the or, or have share your uh, charts with us, which are only for the Boston Pops Orchestra. They're, they have p- complete propriety on them. Um, but if you're willing to share those and want to come and do the program, I know that you'll be happy. And Keith Lockhart said, sure, I'll come. You know, well, it happens time now, time after time, as I see these big names coming into Lincoln and working with our symphony orchestra, they go, oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe how, how great a symphony orchestra this is. And uh, it happened with Ben Folds. It happened with Jane Lynch. It happened with Joshua Bell. It happened with Midori. And most recently now with Renee Fleming. We started the rehearsals with Renee Fleming with some of the hardest pieces of music to play um, for voice and orchestra, the Strauss Four Last Song. And I just smiled. I said, "Yep, and we have a lot of work to do. Let's get let's get to it." <laughs> and uh, you know, it 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 turned into a bit of a love feast, the uh, love fest at that point. And I, you know, I can just give you example after example. So that's proof. The proof is in the pudding. You know, you can talk about it as much as you want. Um, so anyone who's listening to this podcast, I would say, if you've never been to a Lincoln Symphony Orchestra concert. Let me know. Email me at the Lincoln Symphony, lincolnsymphony.com. I will make sure that you get comp tickets to even our opening concert, which is going to be so freaking spectacular. A brand new tenor on the scene just made his debut with Cleveland Orchestra. He's going to be making his Met debut right after the first of the year. And he, I'm telling you, this guy is the next Pavarotti. I will comp you with tickets just so that you'll have the experience of hearing your Lincoln Symphony Orchestra in in motion, in concert. And then I want you to come back and tell me what you thought about it. Just give me your opinion. You know, you didn't like it. I'll copy again for another concert. <laughs> Until you do. <laughs> Until you do. <laughs> now, unfortunately... Ed cut out. Uh, Ed, Ed's cut out the segment of that opening show where I freestyle rap over a chamber orchestra. Uh, the people want it. We were pushing for it. I think it's going to be cut for time, which is very disappointing. But uh, but yes, nonetheless. <laughs> Ed, 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 let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Um, you, you, you talk about Lincoln, but you, you know, I'm sure you've had opportunities all across the country since 1998 that you didn't take because you were doing what you're doing in Lincoln. And, you know, I, and you alluded a little bit to this in one of your answers, but, you know, you think, I guess I always kind of picture the people who are the best of the best in the fine arts 
want to be in the New York cities. They want to be, you know, they right. want to be in in the Paris's, the the all of those things. Mm-hmm. You you've legitimately. I know you've stayed here when when other opportunities I'm sure could have taken you away since 1998. And and again, you live in Baltimore, but you're here all the time. It's your second right. home. Right. Why? 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 Well, I'm, I'm so curious. Okay. Well, th- this th- th- there are actually a number of factors that have influenced that decision. Um, um, what the first thing is, Jack, and people who know me will know this about me. I tend to be an extremely loyal person, and if I make a commitment or I state that I'm going to make a commitment, um. Unless there's something on the other end that does not allow me to, i.e. that the commitment is broken on their end, not on my end, I will always, I will always see it through. And, um, there's, there is a story, uh, about Lincoln Symphony Orchestra where, uh, early on, my fourth or fifth year, um, I got representatives. There are five, there are five tails that, that, that are part of this dog and they were all wagging the dog. When I took over, you have your orchestra, of course, your players, you have your guild, which is now kind of morphed into a friends of the symphony. You have your staff, you have your board and you have your foundation. And I said to I got all of them together at the country club and I said, look, I know that things are going so much better now after four years. I can't remember the exact amount of time, three, four, five years or something somewhere in there. Um, I said, and if you're happy with this status quo, um, and this is where you want to be, and this is not a criticism, but I have to tell you that I'm not your man. I'm a builder. I'm a mover and a shaker, and I have to see results. But it's not going to happen unless we're all on the same page. And I have to say that all five tales became one. And we all got on the same page. And that was the beginning. And I believe it was very shortly thereafter that Barbara became our executive, Barbara Zockley Mm -hmm. became our executive director. And Anton, God bless him, also decided to stay on because we were having powwows that, yes, we can do this, but it's going to take some work and we can, we can go. So I said to them, if you come on board, if you all step up to the plate, then I will make a long-term commitment to you. Because everybody thought that Ed Politchik came on board and, um, not, and maybe be with Lincoln somewhere between five and six years, seven years, something like that. Um, so I, I said, but if you will all make that commitment with me, I will make, uh, I promise you I'll make a long-term commitment. That now has morphed into, and I, it's true that I, uh, because at the same time, while I was, had taken over Lincoln, I had my own group in Baltimore, Concert Artists of Baltimore, which was incredibly busy. I was a full-time faculty member on the faculty at the Peabody Conservatory of the Johns Hopkins University. And I was still doing a lot of work with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. So, yeah, my time was was very limited and uh, and at a premium constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, society actually has taken certain turns. And we saw it in 2008, 2009, after the uh, economy tanked 
and we almost went under with with what was going on and had to scramble to save the economy, save the stock market, rebuild. Uh, and the attitude started becoming different right around that time as well. Um, and you go up from there through the various administrations and then COVID hits. We had uh, another turn of events. So um, funnily enough, uh, the year before COVID, uh, the year that COVID hit, I had, uh, actually it was before COVID hit, but that year, that season, which would have been 1920, 2019-2020, uh, I said to Peabody, I, uh, I've i been here now on the faculty full-time for, for 43 years. I think it's long enough. Generations are changing. Um, I think you need to get somebody in here with fire in his or her belly, the way I did when I was in my early 20s, uh, to take over. And, you know, because I did choral work, I did opera, I did uh, uh, chamber orchestra, I did orchestra, I did it all at the conservatory. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. And I said, I'm doing this primarily because I want to spend more time in Lincoln. Because I saw how putting time into Lincoln really was turning the orchestra around in a major way. Now, COVID hits and everything down. And the irony of that didn't escape me. But um, it was everything was put in place. And uh, as a result, our community supported this orchestra completely through COVID. They paid every musician, his or her full contract, paid the, the staff, paid my salary, even at times when there was very little going on. We always made good on our promise of number of concerts, even if they were they had to be um, <clears throat> taken down. Oh, yeah. of course, yeah. it was a, a safety measure. So we never we never really stopped performing, and it gave uh, the orchestra a chance to try out their muscles in a different kind of way. You know, uh, when you look at the string section on stage. Uh, the, everybody's two on a stand except for the bases. Well, even the bases can be two on a stand. Then it had to be separated. Six to eight feet, separate stands. Didn't leave a lot of room for anything else. Woodwinds and brass had to be separated 10 to 12 feet. And so at the max, even at the largest stage in the, in the lead center, we could only put about 25 to 30 people on stage. And that made a whole different ball game for the way the orchestra had to play and listen. And I could not be more proud of us the way we got through that. Um, and then now um, we're back to full size. And I'm telling you, this orchestra is playing like the Cleveland Orchestra. I love this orchestra so much. So I have told it, I'm, uh, there's a new management, I'm not, not at liberty to say what it is, that are interested in me. Um, to do more guest conducting and, you know, and they will look at that. They probably will submit my name to other orchestras if they're looking for music directors. I don't know. We'll see. But I said to them right out from the get go, uh, 
I'm willing to do anything. I'm, I, I love doing it all, whether it's lecturing, uh, doing things for, uh, uh, at uh, colleges and universities, on the professional level, in this country or abroad. But I will not let it impact my schedule with Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra. That I have to hold sacrosanct for the moment and, and for the time being, because I have made this commitment and I want to see our orchestra continue to prosper the way it, it has been. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of what we've been doing and the way, way we've done it. My gods, they're, they're a city of almost 300,000 people. That's a community, that's a smaller community compared to Pittsburgh, New York, Chicago, New York, uh, uh, Boston, LA, whatever. How are they doing it? And they're sounding so incredible. It's a whole new, way of doing it and even Anton and I the last at the last concert when we were talking about this kind of thing he said we should write a book and so that's now on the on the burner you never right. know what's no. all right you There's can an interesting story that, you can that, come on the podcast a second time when you need to plug your book then that sounds good <laughs> hey you, you you talked a little bit about about uh about growing up and and your, your your father and and, and also I'm, I'm curious though and you talked about doing what you love and you love music was there a time in your childhood did you know right away you loved it or was it one of because one of the biggest things difficult things for kids is yeah there's parts of it i like but the practice all of those things that go into it the hard work that goes into it did you love that stuff when you were a kid or did that come later first of all I've known, I, th I think the, the, the key word, uh, especially for young, young children, you know, from two ages, even before two, but from age of reasoning, uh, begins, I think, at around two. <clears throat> from two, age of two through six, let's say, the key word there is exposure. And I happened to grow up right across the street from where I was baptized. I was raised Roman Catholic in a Slovak church, uh, right across the street. And my mother and her sister uh, were members of the church choir. So every choir practice, every Sunday, I was carted, you know, up to the choir loft, and I heard this singing, these choirs singing. And what was even more overwhelming was the pipe organ. That was behind us all, and I can re I can remember this because and the reason I know it had to be before two two years old is because by, by the time I was two and a half, uh, we had moved from that small town to another small town not far away, um, uh, uh, but but we weren't members of that church any longer. But I can remember coming back after every Sunday mass. Uh, into our living room, and I was maybe somewhere between one and a half and two and a half years old, entertaining by dancing and by singing um, to, to, to all all the little Slovak ladies that would come across <laughs> and bring their kolaches or kolaches, as we say out in Lincoln, and you know, and their cakes and their things and their coffee clashes and everything else, and. My mother, who did have a piano in the house, she played piano. She wasn't, she didn't study seriously, but she could play the piano. My mother and my father then, of course, noticed that right from a very early age, I was fascinated by the piano. 
um, and being able to press down individual keys, not just banging on the keys to make sound or noise. And uh, uh, because of that, they nurtured that aspect of my interest. And by four years old, I was actually studying piano. By five, I made my recital debut, solo recital debut. By six, I made my orchestra debut with the thing. And by eight, I was in Carnegie Hall with the solo recital. Now, that when you look back at it, when I look back at it, it's hard for me to even remember some of these things, you know, but I can remember some of those very first pieces. But because I loved it so much, I loved to practice. I loved getting to the piano. They couldn't keep me away from it. Between the piano and this little box that played 78s and eventually 33 and a third vinyls, <laughs> uh, I can remember things that, that I, I, from a very, very early childhood that had tremendous impact on me, uh, uh, all through uh, my growing up. And then I became a church musician as well as the pianist. Um, by 10 or 12, I was actually playing the organ in my, in the church in this new town that we were in because our organist had gotten sick. Um, and that was a time when there was still the Latin mass going on. And over a weekend, I learned how to play and sing the, 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 the Latin mass, uh, requiem mass that I'd play every morning three times for 7, 7.30 and 8 o'clock mass, and then I'd go to school. And then it got to a point where I was getting up at like 4.30 in the morning to start practicing because I wanted to get it done. I wanted to get it in that prime time, which drove my sister, God lover, crazy as well as my parents because here I am playing 4.30 to 6.30 in the morning, 10.30 at night, <laughs> and I'd keep them up until 1 or 2 in the morning. <laughs> So they got it from both ends. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Hey, I'm glad to hear that you did get up early at one point in your life, though. That's at good one, to know. <laughs> because, because then I would get to bed at that time rather yeah, than get right. up at that time. Right? Uh, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it, 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 was, it, it was interesting you were talking in the beginning of the podcast about experiencing classical music live and the different experience that is as compared to listening on the radio, listening, you know, on a recording or something like this. And you know, you know me, whenever I talk to you, I like to try and make sports analogies to, to music, but that's how, that's how hockey is for me. Okay. I can't, I, I don't like I, watching hockey on TV. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't watch it, but I've gone to games and I'm like, this sport is incredible in yeah. person. And it kind of sounds like that's what you're saying about, about being in person at, uh, at a symphony concert. I I I actually absolutely do. I think that that if if you were to ask me a general question, what do you think is the most important thing for any person in life to discover? And I would say the most important thing for any person to discover is his or her passion. If you find out where that lies and you can make that work for you, you'll be like me. You'll never work a day in your life, but you don't necessarily have to be in that to still have a passion for other things. And I think that that's uh, in your case, I, you say, you know, play hockey. Right. Mm -hmm. But you 
are, you you have such a, a a connection with it that interests your not just your intellect but your emotional uh, it, but I call the emotional intellect the connection between the brain and the heart. Um, that's where passion lies. And, and when you have that, that passion can be directed in any, any direction you, 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 you find. And it can allow you to even open up into other areas that you'll find even quote unquote semi-passionate, um, or be semi-passionate about. And I believe that music, because it's so universal, um, uh, whether it's you, you, you go from hard rock, acid rock, rap, uh, through, uh, backwards through the, uh, the disco phase, through the, uh, 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 uh pop stage, the, the, the hip hop, uh, the Motown into the musicals, you know, all of that stuff that was occurring in the 20th century. You know, even Bernstein himself said that the two most important, uh, influences on music in the 20th century were Elvis Presley and the Beatles. And he's right to a large extent. Um, he himself actually ended up being one of those major forces uh, uh, impacting 20th century. Think about him as the, the, the conductor, the maestro of the New York Philharmonic, right? New York Philharmonic. He was the one who revisited Mahler and became a Mahler uh, uh, exponent. And now we do Mahler all the time. But he didn't do just that. He played piano. He conducted the orchestra from the piano. He didn't only do his Beethoven piano concerto. He also did Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue. And then what did he end up writing? One of the greatest, quote unquote, musicals of all times, West Side Story. And to some extent, I think the orchestra, the New York Philharmonic was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, here we go. And then, you know, then, of course, they coveted it. Um, he was, I would say, the greatest musical genius treasure that we, American uh, genius that we have in music uh, that's ever been. I'm not sure that there's anybody before or since Bernstein that can, that could uh, equal what he did as a pedagogue, as a performer, as a conductor, as a, a pianist, as a composer, uh, as a, a, a lecturer, and, and writing of books, and all. I mean, he was he was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I want I want to see how you describe something. I think probably the listeners I, I have this experience. I know I have it. There there are just times in life where music hits you right it hits you in a different way whether it's the you know it's friday afternoon it's the end of the work week and you turn up the radio and it's nice outside and it just hits different or you're going through an emotional time and there's a song right. that hits that that hits or their their lyrics or their, it evokes a memory or, or uh -huh. something that i mean there's there's just that power you don't always get it but when you do it's really good i'm curious how you describe that feeling for you which I'm sure you have it when you're in, when you're conducting, when you're, when you're right there live having it all. I'm sure that happens for you, but I'm curious how you would describe those moments for yourself. Well, uh, I do. Uh, and very often, uh, people will ask me, you know, who's your favorite composer or what's your favorite piece of music? And I've done several, uh, programs on this like the desert island discs where you have to name your five greatest pieces that if yeah. you went to a desert island, that kind of thing but what it really comes down to for me is my favorite composer 
or my favorite piece of music is whichever piece I'm actually working on at that particular point in time. And it's, I, I'm very grateful for that. Um, uh, 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 how should I say it? The, 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 uh, the manner in which that, uh, uh, uh sees itself within me, um, to be able to do that because that tells me that my passion in, in just about music is, is real. Um, and it doesn't matter to me whether it's, uh, Bach, Beethoven, Beatles, um, Bartok. It, it doesn't matter to me. Whatever that is at that moment in time, I am absolutely tuned into in such a way that it becomes my favorite. Um, yes, we all have very emotional times in our lives. They could be falling in love, uh, falling out of love. Um, uh, the, the death of a, a very close person, um, uh, falling in love and then getting married, um, cinching that relationship. Um, and I think of all of the senses, uh, they say that one of the strongest is the sense of smell in terms of, uh, conjuring up in our minds, um, some of the earliest recollections that we have. I would say that, um, I wouldn't say that the aural, that the ear, what you hear is, uh, competes with that, but what the way that is processed when you hear music, I think can be as strong as the sense of smell. And it brings us back to either when we were very young or those points in times when that, that music brings us there. It could be a hymn. For that matter, it could be uh, a, 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 one of the you know top ten uh, of of, of uh, 1966. It doesn't matter what what that is, but that it's there is why I think it is so incredibly strong. And I do have some of those that, uh, especially when I am now at an age where I begin to re- repeat um, uh, repertoire. There was a period in my life when I never ever conducted the same thing twice ever and as you get older of course you have to go back to some of those and there are several that are like that but Mahler's second for example is is a piece for me um the resurrection symphony um but there are still pieces on the piano uh that do that to me when i sit down to play brahms Mm -hmm. is into I, I they they and I'm playing along and all of a sudden I feel a little tear just dropping down there and I go good lord you're such a sap politic you <laughs> still, we all do still, it it still it still does it yeah it, yep. it's still it's still there and it will always be there it really yeah. will which is why Jack I I really believe so so strongly in just. Not that people are going to come to the symphony and say, oh, okay, I'm ready to give you $100,000 and, and uh, uh, I'm going to you know, put you in my will and I'm going to subscribe. I, I don't do it for that reason. I want those people to, have the, to experience that connection that live music can do. And our orchestra now is at a, at a point that if you go to the lead center where the Lincoln Symphony is playing, I will put our orchestra up against any orchestra that comes into Lincoln. Uh, because I think it's fabulous that the lead center uh, bring, does bring an orchestra, St. Louis Symphony, uh, Chicago National Symphony, Cleveland Orchestra. They're all, you know, and, and I, I remember once years ago being asked, oh, the way we set up uh, 
the brochure is we have um, the National Symphony coming in, and on the other page we have uh, Lincoln Symphony in there. I, I hope you're, you're okay with that. I said, okay with that? I couldn't pay for that kind of, of PR and marketing. Are you kidding? You've just, I don't look at us as we're any less than the National Symphony. I say, in the public's eye, you put us on the same level as the National Symphony. Do it every year. Right, Do same it every stage. Year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? so, uh, and I think it's important for people to realize that, and that, that they're, they're Lincoln Symphony Orchestra. That's why, that's why at, at that, that point several years ago, you know, when we moved from uh, Kimball Recital Hall into the Lead Center, uh, uh, Barbara and the board agreed to put that apostrophe S at the end of Lincoln. And so, and it's difficult to say Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra. And I want everybody to feel that and then experience it too. Yeah. So I will, I will, I've made my commitment. Yep. I say if anybody's at this podcast who has never been to a Lincoln Symphony Orchestra concert, you let me know via email and we will comp you tickets. I, I'm going to put your email address in the comments just so people know so they can see it right away. And I want to hear back and see, see if we get any takers on that. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Uh Last question for you, Ed, before I let you go. I uh, we've we've talked about this on on the air and off the air several times, but someday, someday, I'm going to go up to Baltimore while Ed's there, and we're going to have a weekend in Baltimore. Just tell me, let's workshop the itinerary for our weekend in Baltimore. What are we doing if we have a if we have a few days and a few nights in Baltimore to have some real fun? Okay, it depends, of course, on the season. If you were to come this summer, let's come. Let's say it's summer. Yeah. I, I, the first thing I would do, I need to know your dates. I would want to make sure that the Orioles are in town, and I would ha- have to get you to an Orioles game um, uh, with some of the best seats in the stadium. And that Oriole Park at Camden Yards is the, the most greatest Tissimo ballparks in the country. I have to ask, I, most test- Oh, I had to put the Italian on there because I'm. A, it is the it's the best ballpark. It really is. So that would be on our itinerary. I'd have to take you to to at least three of about eight nine restaurants that I you know, and they know me as maestro. But to get you the best crab cakes that you have ever tasted in your life, ever tasted in your life, and I'd also I'd also have to take you. Um, either I'd have to uh, steam them myself or I'd have to take you to a restaurant that I know does really great crabs and have us go out and pick crabs. You know how it's, it's, it's really an art. It's, oh, man. It's the best, you know. And I don't even like fishing for bluegill. I don't know how I do with that. Yeah! No, this is great. I tell, and, you know, you know, you know who, who taught me. How to pick them and who introduced me to the soft shell crabs was none other than Milton Eisenhower, the bro- the brother of of I, I of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yeah, what? we yeah he befriended me early on with, when I first moved to 
Baltimore. It really, I, you know, it was great. I got to know Milton Eisenhower, and he also introduced me to Wild Turkey 101. <laughs> but when you're eating crabs, you really, you got to have, you got to have beer, even yeah. though I'm not a beer drinker. But we have one of the worst, worst beers in the world. Well, God, if this ever gets back to Baltimore, I'll be run out. It's called National Bohemian Beer. Here in Baltimore, we call it Natty Bo. <laughs> and actually, if you want to be Baltimoreese, it's Natty Bayhorn. That's what we, that's what you drink when you have crabs and when you're steaming them. You have to use beer to steam them as well. Okay. So that would be on our itinerary as well. I'd have to show you some of the great things that are around in Baltimore, like Fort McHenry, um, like some of our, because um, Baltimore's a really old, old city, we, and it's maintained some of the most beautiful architecture and, and neighborhoods. I also had bought a home uh, here in Baltimore in a, a neighborhood called Butcher's Hill, and I'm right off of Patterson Park. My home is, is about 170-some years old. It's historical, na uh, city, state, and nationally historic, because Betsy Patterson, who was married to Jerome Bonaparte, the nephew of uh, Napoleon. What? Yep. Yep. Their their signatures are on my deeds. And, oh, my and gosh. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's really amazing. Here's, you know, Ed, Ed Politic from Peckville, Pennsylvania is now... In this historic home. <laughs> and I have to show you around uh, the park. It's just gorgeous. And in the park, by the way, is, are the cannons that were used to fire across the, the inner harbor toward Fort McHenry that helped win in 1814, helped cinch the win, the battle in the War of 1812. So it's very historic that's, that's around here, right in my neighborhood. And, and so I, I am so blessed because I bought the house for nothing. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, it was, it was just, uh, uh, an old row home that, you know, Oh, is that historic? Yeah. Well, when I bought it and I found my deed and I said, who the hell are Betsy Patterson and Jerome Bonaparte? I know the name Bonaparte, but it couldn't be. Well, it is. It, <laughs> And so I opened up four of the fireplaces, put in recessed lighting, kept as much of the old as I could. It is gorgeous. I, now I'm going to make a plaque. I'm going to have a bronze plaque made for the front of the house if the National Historical Society will let me do this. And I'm going to call it Politics Palace. <laughs> That's so good. So that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Jack Mitchell Podcast. Remember, we drop every Thursday at 9 a.m. Uh, wherever you, you get podcasts. You can also go to KLIN.com slash The Jack Mitchell Podcast. Follow the Facebook page. Just search The Jack Mitchell Podcast. And next week, we're going back to sports, and it's somebody a lot of people are talking about right now. Stay tuned for more. See you next Thursday.